Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for community practitioners of entrepreneurship. This podcast is a production of Startup Space, an entrepreneurship community building platform. I'm your host, David Panraj. We're launching this podcast to highlight the stories of everyday community leaders who break down barriers to entry for underserved and underrepresented entrepreneurs. We believe in equitable and inclusive access to the tools and resources needed to start a business. In this podcast, we will speak with some of the leading voices in the field of inclusive entrepreneurship and learn from their best practices to apply in our own communities as practitioners. Today, we're speaking with Todd Connor, the founder of Bunker Labs and the author of Third Shift Entrepreneur. Welcome, Todd. Thank you, David. Good to be with you and great to be on the podcast. So Todd, tell us first a little bit about what led you on this journey and uh, where you are today. Yeah, so uh, what led me on the journey was my own life in starting a business. Um, The first business I started was in 2009. No, that's not true. It was 2008. Um, A little professional services consulting business, having, you know, taken what I learned working for a big management consulting firm and trying to apply that and do that on my own terms. And, uh, and I fumbled and I got some things right. I got some things wrong. I made a little bit of money, not enough to live on. And, and I took some of those lessons learned and, and, and did it again, and then did it again, and did it again. And, and so often in entrepreneurship, that's the case where it, you know, it's not a one and done. It's, it's, a, it's a craft that we're curating. It's a skill set that we're building. Um, and entrepreneurs have to you know, often come back at it to figure out how to do it again and do it better. And um, eventually, I went out and started an organization, Bunker Labs, that helps military veterans and military spouses start and grow businesses. And we did that uh, about six years ago and had some amazing success scaling that organization across the country to about 40 different cities, really because of the community that we're serving. You know, the military community has such a passion for wanting to start businesses and wanting to help each other along the way. And that's a real recipe for success. You know, what I've uh, come to observe, David, in the last really 10 years, both from my own lived experience, but also in, in, in helping the military community start and grow businesses, is that um, there was a gap in, in understanding as to how real people start real businesses. And I, I wrote a book, Third Shift Entrepreneur, uh, that comes out uh, uh, sort of formally next month. So, you know, the military community has a strong desire to start and grow businesses. And so we saw that desire and built an organization to help them do that. Uh, and that's what Bunker Labs has been over the last six years. We've scaled into 40 different cities and we're helping kind of nurture ecosystems in each of those markets to help entrepreneurs start and grow businesses. And over the course of you know, really for me, David, the last you know 12 years from starting my own businesses and then helping others start their own businesses, I saw just a huge gap in the literature in understanding and frankly, the storytelling about how people actually start businesses. And I wrote Third Shift Entrepreneur, both to highlight the stories of people that have started businesses and to show that you don't need to quit your job or raise a bunch of outside capital in order to do it. And I'm, you know, really passionate about wanting to see more people uh, start businesses, whether it's underrepresented, you know, black and brown entrepreneurs, whether it's women, whether it's rural uh, entrepreneurs, whether it's the military community, uh, which, by the way, has intersectionality with all those things. Um, I think too often the mythology of a Harvard dropout who goes to Silicon Valley 
um, it, it ignores um, it ignores a lot of things. Number one is the, the social capital that's at play, uh, which is to say, you know, those stories of going to Silicon Valley and quote unquote making it involve um, having, you know, social networks, which is, you know, predicated on social capital. And as we know, it's not a competition of ideas. It's a competition of, of you know, ability to get those ideas to the right people, which is, uh, you know, has a strong overlay that excludes too many people. And, um, and also those stories ignore um, that the vast majority of new businesses in this country aren't going to sort of take a lap through uh, accelerators. They're not going to receive uh, venture capital dollars. They're not going to get outside investment. And a lot of them aren't even going to uh, receive outside uh, loans. I mean, a lot of the businesses that uh, are going to be started this year and certainly by the people that we serve, are going to be uh, people bootstrapping things and bringing things to life. And it turns out that that's, in fact, not a bad way to do it. I think we apologize for uh, you know businesses that don't sort of fit the mold of what we think a cool startup is. But in fact, I think we need to be celebrating those businesses and, and help people understand that, like, hey, if you're listening right now and you've got a job and you need that job because you've got to pay your bills, you've got to pay your rent, um, like welcome to the vast majority of Americans who need those things. Um, and, and, and I, what I want to say to that audience is like, you can still start a business from that place. And, and that's what third shift entrepreneur is all about. It, it's fascinating. In fact, uh, your story that you've just mentioned is the reality that Americans live with. In fact, uh, our business, a startup space is hundred percent bootstrapped and we bootstrapped it from zero to a million dollars in revenue in less than two years by realizing that you have two choices. You can either spend your first year looking for capital or you can spend the first year looking for revenue. If you look for capital, you still have to return that capital back. You, If you get revenue, you get to keep that revenue. And then some. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, and honestly, I don't know how this conversation got away from us, which is um, exactly what you're saying, David, which is revenue is the fuel for a startup. And, um, and too many entrepreneurs confuse getting investors with success of a startup. And, you know, investors, not only are they going to get, you know, paid, but they're, they're going to take their money and then some. I mean, that's the whole model, right? And so I think we've got to disaggregate um, what investors are looking for from what you need to be successful as an entrepreneur. It's not one and the same Um in fact, uh, being cautious is, a, is, is actually an important asset when it comes to starting a business, um, being conservative, uh, maintaining your own personal financial stability, because if you are personally at a, a place of financial risk, your business is at a place of risk. And so we need people to not take uncalculated risks, not uh, give it all up and cash it all in as if that's some predicate of success. But in fact, take thoughtful steps to get customers and build something that's valuable. And there's a way to do this. And again, Third Shift Entrepreneur is full of these stories. There's a way to do this in really strategic and small ways. And that's um, that's what we need to be doing. We need to tell more stories like that because the Harvard dropout, who, by the way, you know, whose parents, by the way, are paying their rent while they go to Silicon Valley and don't make money for six months, that's a story that we can't relate to. And, um, and, and by the way, you know, too many of these founders, they don't tell an honest story about, you know, how it all came together. Um, so we need to, we need to tell more honest stories and then, and then frankly, give a better playbook. And I think that's what, you know, I hope Third Shift Entrepreneur does for people. Yep. Can you also speak to this idea? Because uh, I'm on a crusade to tell people that entrepreneurship is simply about wealth creation. 
that and you actually alluded to that you said you know don't take uncalculated financial risks because you can't start a business to become poorer than you already are right like business you go into business to create wealth for your families to earn a living and sometimes business ideas don't pan out you need to know when to exit quickly and then go back retool uh, get your social financial and intellectual capital back in and then go back and do it if you're a serial entrepreneur but I think we don't also talk about uh, the mechanics of entrepreneurship is simply about how do you start a successful business, period. And how do you make money? It's not all the other things. How do you raise capital? Uh, you know, how do you go to Shark Tank? All of these things that are kind of uh, glorified uh, today are not the realities that 32 odd million businesses face every day. Exactly. And I talk about um, I talk about the, the politics of permission um, that. Um, you know, too many entrepreneurs, and I think that we haven't done a good job again, and we, we've put too much emphasis on venture capital and, and angel investors and, and frankly, outside capital. We've made too much of the story and frankly, too much of the infrastructure and support systems built around investor interest as opposed to the entrepreneur's interest. And that's a whole permission structure that we need to reject. The permission that entrepreneurs need to give themselves is just that. It's the permission they can give themselves. It's, it's hey, I can I can start a business. I like the framing of wealth creation. Uh, and I might even expand that to say, it's really about the value creation. So entrepreneurship is about being a person with a skill set who sees an opportunity to create something of value and then sort of puts the pieces together to create that value. And that is a skill set that is actually agnostic to business model type. It's agnostic to investors. It's agnostic to a lot of things. In fact, I think the place of, of most uh, entrepreneurship success comes from working at a job where you already have a demonstrated expertise. You know, what I talk about in the book is if you want to open a restaurant, you know, then go work at a restaurant. It sounds dumb, but I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I talk to who want to start a business completely detached from what they're doing today. And so the first thing is work at a place where you're seeing those those networks come together you're you're learning how the industry works you're seeing what the opportunity could be and and if 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 you like have a day job working in accounting and you want to open up a restaurant then you know your first step is dedicate your nights and weekends to working at a restaurant put yourself in an internship you know go work in the kitchen go work in the you know taking reservations go understand um how the the you know the leases get established so there's so much that you can do from where you're at um, on your nights and weekends and on the side, or frankly, orienting your professional life around the business that you want to start. And I think that's the, that's the first step for people. It's not entrepreneurship. Isn't like, I'm totally rejecting everything I've learned up until now. And I'm taking this big leap with a beautiful PowerPoint to go build something. That's like, you know, like I had a dream about a business that I could start someday. Um, we need to build more of a mental bridge for people that says, look, if you have an idea from the place at which you work, you know, begin to build a solution, get your employer involved in it, you know, prove that you can actually create a market, um, then take that and maybe port that over and turn that into your own business somehow. But there's a lot of ways to do this. And, and you're right, David, it's all about the mechanics of this, which, uh, which we don't talk about. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I love the idea of the value creation. I'm going to add that to wealth creation because it's that incremental benefit. That's all you need. Like you see the problem, you see the solution, you are an expert on the problem because you work in that industry, et cetera. And you now are able to uh, to basically monetize that value. 
uh, versus like, you know, the coming up with this really cool idea where you have no background, you don't have a technical expertise, you're not a uh, developer, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take one step back because I'm also curious about what got you into uh, helping veterans. Uh, where did that journey start? Yeah. Well, I was in the military uh, myself after college and uh, served for four years on active duty and had a really great experience um, uh, in the Navy. And, um, you know, I think for the military community, a lot of them, when they get out of the military, they don't know how to take what they've done in the military and translate that to what they're going to do after the military in in terms of their civilian life and and success. And uh, 25% of uh, military veterans want to start their own business. And so that's a big number, and only about four percent um, are doing so. Um, and and you know, there's a generational implication to this as well, which is older veterans, World War II generation, which was a lot of American adult men. Um, about fifty percent of them started their own business, and and that's a huge number, and that created an economic boom that we continue to kind of live into today and enjoy today. And a lot of businesses that they created were some of them be, became major industries and some of them were just, you know, local restaurants and dry cleaners and, um, you know, plumbing and HVAC shops and stuff that, you know, local communities needed. And so we have a, you know, a crisis in this country, um, in the United States, at least of uh, not more people starting businesses. And that's interesting because we're at like a 50 year historic low um, and we've been this we've been declining for decades in terms of the rates of people starting businesses which people don't know and people are actually surprised by they think that we're they think that entrepreneurship is is exploding in this country but the data suggests otherwise and that disconnect is because as you said we've celebritized entrepreneurs we've celebritized um, silicon valley we've celebritized shark tank uh, we have you know you know the last president was a sort of a celebrity on tv around you know being an apprentice and starting a business and so we we think it's really cool but that's not translating to more people starting businesses because those stories don't relate they're not relatable to the kinds of businesses that most people are going to start and so so i've been very passionate about um really people finding fulfillment in their lives and that's for me what this is all about um, and, and the military is a community that I come from. It's a community that I care about. And I want them, especially because of what they've done in, in, in uniform, I, I, I especially feel like they have, um, you know, the right to find fulfillment after being in the military. And I think entrepreneurship is a, is a key path towards that because it's ultimately about self-fulfillment. And so, um, you know, I guess the last thing I'd say is, um, if we can talk about entrepreneurship as a status symbol, then it's fleeting. If we talk about it as the opportunity to pursue things that matter to you, that you care about, that you're curious about, that you're passionate about, then there is no upper bound, you know? And so we've got to keep this, this, this work anchored in solving problems that we care about. Um, and that's the genesis of entrepreneurship. And if you think about that, like I was talking to somebody and they said, you know, I want to open up a, uh, a private school um, to help. Uh, you know, I'm going to get it wrong, but, you know, like kindergarten through third grade um, to make sure that, you know, kids can, you know, learn to read. And I see a business opportunity. And I said, well, if if you're passionate about kids, you know, kindergarten through third grade, learning how to read, like when's the last time you helped a kid, you know, kindergarten through third grade, learn how to read who wouldn't have otherwise learned how to read and start there, solve that problem. Tell that story about how you solve that problem. Go solve it for another person. Do it a couple of times prove that you can do it. And then, um, and then you'll capture the outside interest to, to sort of build the business, but that's going to follow. 
you know, you got to stay focused on the problem that you're trying to solve. And if you do that and find a way to do that on a very small scale, you can grow from there. Um, but we've got a, we, we almost have like flipped that sequence and said, well, if you get, if I get a lot of money, then I'll go solve the problem as opposed to I've proven I've solved the problem, which gives me the right to solve it again, which gives me the right to solve it again. And frankly, like I can do all that probably hopefully without having to quit my job. And at some point, if I'm solving it to such an extent that it's taking over my life, then like, then I go full-time into that thing. Or maybe then the investor shows up and gives me an offer because they see what I've been doing. Um, so, um, you know, I just think that there's a simple and, and smarter way to do this, but we don't tell those stories because frankly, teaching people how to do that process doesn't help anybody monetize entrepreneurship except you, the entrepreneur. <laughs> and so, uh, and so I think that's why we're not telling that story more often. So there are two paths I want to go down. The, the first one I, around the military, you know, uh, I used to work uh, for Nielsen, the market research company, and I worked across the world looking at high growth, high tech startups and incubators. And it took me to Tel Aviv, where if you look at the Israeli model, where after high school, you have to go to the military, but then almost everybody comes from there with a specialized skill and they compete on the global scale very effectively uh, because they've got leadership skills, they've got some technical skills, uh, and now they're, they're able to kind of put that right away to work. Do you think that uh, the military can kind of employ something like this? Because... Uh, you know, the the veterans coming out of there deserve the right to be able to get back into the workplace, either with, through entrepreneurship or working for someone. And or do they have the skills? You know, if you said it's only 25% start versus only 4% succeed. Have you looked at that? Well, I'm glad you brought Israel. Israel is a, is a fascinating case study. Um, and the rates of entrepreneurship in, in Israel are just extraordinary. And I don't have the numbers offhand, but, but they, you know, uh, they have an entrepreneurship, you know, kind of entrepreneurial activity in, in Israel is an order of magnitude greater than any other country, far beyond the United States as a percentage of the population. Um, and the success that they're having is, is extraordinary as well. And you raise an interesting point. Uh, and there's, you know, of course, the book Startup Nation, which sort of catalogs how Israel has been so successful as at creating sort of an ecosystem of, of entrepreneurship. And, uh, and it really is an ecosystem that ties in investors, it ties in talent, ties in entrepreneurs. And the undercurrent for that is military service. What I think the story that we have to be telling is, it's, is that um, Israel, because everyone serves in the military, they have a sort of social currency and social capital that gets established through that. And that is in fact what this country had after World War II uh, through uh, the fact that we had a draft and, and like most adult men of a certain age were serving in the military. And what happens, and everyone is part of, you know, some network, you know, if you come from a neighborhood, uh, there's currency in that, you know, it's like, oh, well, what block did you grow up on? Oh, I grew up over there. Oh, I grew up over here. And, and then that becomes a basis by which we can transact. You know, if you went to a, a college or a university, the alumni network serves that function, which is like, oh, you know, I don't actually personally know you. But if we went to school around the same years and I know what dorm you lived in and I know what you studied and like, oh, we both had that one professor, it creates a current, it creates social capital for us. And that allows us to sort of do business and transact on this assumption of trust, on this assumption of we, we sort of, we know each other. Even if we don't know each other, we, we know each other. 
And Israel, by virtue of the fact that everyone serves in the military, has created that social construct where the first question they ask in Israel is not, where did you go to college? Or even like, tell me about your idea. It's what unit were you in? And that's an orientation that gets created in a country, which also, by the way, you know, shares for the most part, you know, a, a faith system as well. Um, but that creates an opportunity. And, um, and I think this is partly the opportunity that we need uh, minority communities to kind of embrace as well. That was my vision for the military community. I, I thought, gosh, the military community has so many assets. I mean, we've got members, if we think of the military as an alumni association, which we don't have an alumni association, but I thought, man, if we could create sort of an alumni association in the context of entrepreneurship, we can pull in investors, we can pull in entrepreneurs, we could sort of ourselves build this juggernaut of a, of a social network and, and create social capital for ourselves as a community that we can sort of invest in ourselves and do these things for ourselves. But, you know, and that's actually continues to be my aspiration for Bunker Labs is that it can be that, that sort of thin line, that social capital where we can transact with each other because we, we serve together, you know? Um, so I think it's actually more about that and less about what you learn, quote unquote, as a leader in being in the military. I think it's more about the social capital that we can create. And the big myth on Silicon Valley is it's not that that's where the smart people go. It's that that's where the social capital is. It's, and that's why there's a huge diversity problem it's because that social capital doesn't recognize people that it doesn't recognize, you know? Um, and that's the problem with Silicon Valley. And that's why it's, even though that's where the money is, I don't think, I know it's not where all the good ideas are. Um, and even if you look at some of the key incubator programs in Silicon Valley, like Y Combinator, they're not teaching you things. They're just helping you get networked with the people that can invest in you, right? And so I don't know if that's a, 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 a hidden story or not, um, but I mean, there is no curriculum. It's a weekly dinner. I mean, that's what it is. And so so I think I, I just, I say that to hopefully encourage people outside of Silicon Valley to say, look, it's not that there's no magic there. It's just that that's where the relationships are. And Israel has figured out how to make those relationships available to a whole country by virtue of the fact that they all serve in the military. I think we've got to create similar social networks in the United States and, and really, um, you know, really tell more honest stories about, hey, you know, Silicon Valley is working, but it's, it's working because there's a lot of social, con you know, social capital at play in that. And how do we recreate social capital and extend social capital to communities that haven't historically had it? Wow. Fascinating idea. I'm just, you know, walking through the steps as you're talking about it. But I think you have a really good point there because there is a huge sense of familiarity among all of the founders. And I spent a lot of time with Israeli founders that sense that, you know, they were in these units that they could relate to. Or there's a point in time they could relate back to that was a shared experience, even if they weren't in the same room together or in the same training. It's that shared experience that they can relate back to. And I don't know what that would be for uh, a nation like ours, uh, right? But uh, it's a fascinating thought. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I know. And, yeah. and and like you, I don't know what that would be either. But I think it's um, but I think it's it's interesting because that is what is hampering entrepreneurship in this country, is my view, you know. And um, y you know, there's lots of stories about how uh, you know, future entrepreneurs, at least venture-backed entrepreneurs. And I want to, that's an important caveat. These are sort of venture backed sort of Silicon Valley success stories, but, you know, people kind of point back to like, well, they were early employees at Facebook. They were early employees at Google and those alumni networks kind of get created. Right. But that's, 
that is really a whole growth story that's predicated on social capital. It's not predicated on talent. I just, I, I just can't say that strongly enough. Um, and yes, you learn things by being a, a high growth startup. So like, yes, you're learning as well. Right. But, um, but if that's the only way that we see growth happening, then we're going to exclude people that haven't worked in high growth, early stage startups, which is going to exclude a whole lot of people, you know, because they just didn't end up in Silicon Valley working at those kinds of companies. And so, um, the good news is we can solve for that, but we've got to we've got to honestly diagnose the problem and uh, and then build from there. At least that's my point of view. And again, <laughs> I want to give people you know that's a problem that's got to be solved. But I don't I don't I, I don't want people thinking that I can't be successful unless I figure out how to break into that network, um, unless I get into an accelerator program, unless I get outside investors. I want to reject that and say you can you can start a business today. Because if you can, because you can solve a problem, and you know, third shift entrepreneur and the playbook I've I've given folks, um, and I'm not saying this because I'm trying to sell a book, but I'm saying it because I I really want people to understand there's a path, there's a way to do this, and I've done it in my own life, and I've seen uh, you know literally hundreds of other people do it in theirs, and unless we can create a path for people that cannot afford to quit their job and move somewhere, or go full time into a, a startup that isn't generating money, which by the way. Like that's not shameful. That's the vast majority of us. Um, unless we can give folks like that a playbook, uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna democratize entrepreneurship, and and ultimately we're all gonna pay the price for that. That's not just about people not being able to be entrepreneurs and live into their own potential, which is a travesty. But it's also about the good ideas and the good products and services and businesses that we as consumers will never, you know, uh, be able to enjoy as well. And, and we've got to solve for that. Um, but I think we can. I think we can. Can you give me a, a sneak preview into that playbook? Can you kind of talk through what are some of the the, the key framework steps within yeah. that playbook? Oh my gosh, I'd love to. There's 12 things you got to do. Uh, there's there's 12 steps, and um, and I call them the 12 observations because they're actually they're observations more than they are steps. And you know, quickly some of the themes. I won't hit all of them, but it's. You've got to you got to be curious and be passionate about something. It's that idea. I think too often we think entrepreneurship is like finding a good idea. It's like finding a winning lottery ticket. That's not it at all. It's the thing that you keep thinking about. And everyone, you know, if you're not curious about anything, then you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. But you know, the entrepreneurs that you and I know, David, like you've got some weird idea that just keeps you keep coming back to. Um, and it's probably not a business. It's not a it's not a fully formed business. It's just like, man, I just keep thinking that if we had trash cans on the corner, we would have less litter in the park. You know, it's it's the things like that that keep you up at night. It's the news that you're you know consumed by. So you gotta pay attention to what you keep coming back to. You keep thinking about. The second thing is, you gotta uh, you gotta go public with the thing that you're thinking about, and take a small action to say, hey, I think this is something that matters. This is something that matters to me. Does it matter to you? And you see if people are, are interested in that thing as well. And then the next thing you gotta do is you gotta go out and solve it in a small way. So for me, this was, you know, starting Bunker Labs was, hey, I'm a military veteran who keeps thinking about the fact that more vets aren't starting businesses. And, and that's, that's too bad. And I went out publicly and I said, look, does anybody else think this is a problem? And they went to the incubator spaces in town. And I said, look, do you think this is a problem? And they said, yeah, actually, we think it's a problem too. And I said, okay, cool. You think it's a problem? I think it's a problem. 
um, let's let's make an announcement and see if other people think it's a problem. And let's see if let's let's just go public and see if other veterans want to start businesses. And it's a willingness to go public. There's a willingness to go public. And then you see what the market response is. And by the way, sometimes I go public with ideas and everyone's like, nope, don't <laughs> we don't think it's a problem. And I'm just like, okay, cool. Then it's not a problem. But you go public, you see if it's a problem, and then people come to you and you get a response that it's a problem, and then you try to solve the problem. And you solve it on a small way. You know, it's like, let's get five people in a room who are all vets who want to start a business and let's see if we can help them start a business. And then you grow from there. And um, once you've figured out that there is a problem, you can solve the problem, then you productize what it is you're trying to do. You put a PowerPoint together, you put a price on it. I think you solve it for free and then you charge someone. You know, and for every, even every big idea, there's a minimum viable version of it that exists without some expensive scaled out solution, you know? Even Facebook was just like, hey, it's a small thing for a small group of people and we're, you, we're gonna do it without any like kind of technology or, or, or light technology, we're just gonna solve the problem. And then you productize it and then you begin to get into scale, you know? And then, and then look, there's other great books like Lean Startup and there's other methodologies. And there's a lot of other things you can do at that point, but it, it's this early stage of, I've got something I'm curious about. I present it in a very small way. I see if other people are interested. I solve the problem. I prove that I can solve the problem. And then I put a price on it and I put a packaging around it. And that's true if it's professional services, that's true, whatever. And then, and then I begin to scale, right? So let me just make this real basic. Let's say like I want to build some landscaping business. Okay, I might suggest you go and uh, go talk to your neighbor who's got a, an ugly lawn and say, look, I want to build a landscaping business. But before I get into that, would you let me go and restyle your entire backyard? And, and your neighbor's like, okay, sure. Um, and maybe you ask your neighbor, look, like, I'm going to make it beautiful. Will you just pay for the cost of the plants? You know, or maybe even like, I'll split the cost of the plants with you, you know, and you got to be smart, go to a neighbor that can afford this, right? But you know that you've got a neighbor who's got money and they have an ugly lawn and you go to them and you're like, look, I'd love to make your, your landscaping better. And they say, sure, go for it. And you take a bunch of pictures before you completely blow it out. You make it beautiful. You spend your nights and weekends on it. You get new plants. You, But you put your own time, sweat, labor into that. And maybe, and you tell your neighbor, look, I only want you to pay for the materials if you love how it turns out. And that's a deal for your neighbor. It's like, okay, that's cool. That's free landscaping services. And like, why not? The yard's pretty ugly right now. Let's see what happens. And you go and do that. And the neighbor thinks it's beautiful at the end of it. You take a bunch of pictures and you go on Facebook and you're like, hey, I did this to my neighbor's lawn. Let me know if you want me to do it to your lawn. And you get like a few, or you like make a little flyer. You walk down the street, you put it in, you just show pictures. Hey, I did this to my neighbor's lawn. Do you want me to do this to your lawn? That's the genesis of it, you know, but here's, here's what most people do. I want to launch a landscaping architect business and I go get a website. I go incorporate a business. I come up with like a whole like Facebook ad campaign. I, you know, get a bunch of, you know, landscape designers on contract and I have like, I have a big launch announcement and then I see who shows up. Like, and by the way, maybe no one shows up, but I've just gotten done spending a ton of money. I bought, a, I bought equipment because I got to be ready. I bought a truck. I got a logo. I got this like cool website, you know, and like I built all this, I spent all this money 
without actually solving the thing. Like, by the way, no one even knows if I'm, a, if I'm good at this yet, you know? And so uh, the smart thing is do it. Don't even build a business. Just go solve it. Build a better lawn. Give the before and after pictures. And then like when more people come at you, they're like, hey, I want you to do that to my yard. Then you like do that for a fee and then you go and incorporate a business. And by the way, don't, you don't even need a website yet. Like, why would you waste time on a website? People don't care. Just word them out. So you can tell I'm passionate about this. I'll stop rambling. But I think that is more often the playbook for how people start businesses. And there, there are ways to do that, whether you're trying to open a restaurant, whether you're trying to build a technology business, whether you're trying to do uh, professional services, launch a nonprofit. Um, there's ways to do this in ways that I just described. And that's where the book is full of these stories. It's just full of these stories of people that have done that exactly like I've described. They haven't spent money. They kept their job. And by the way, you can go build that landscape business. Like I just described while you continue to work as like an assistant principal, while you continue to work as a waiter, while you continue to work as a management consultant. Like I would tell you, go and build that business, get five clients get a robust book of business. Don't quit your job. Now look at you. You're building, you've got a business that you own and you've got two incomes, the income from your day job and the income from the business that you just got done building. Right. And at some point, if you want to jump in and go full time, do it. But maybe you just want to keep it as a slow roll, secondary source of income, something that's fun that you do on the nights and weekends. Maybe you only want five clients. That's the max. And maybe 10 people come at you and they want you. Well, then just double your price. Be like, look, I only do five a year. Like, and you create all this leverage for yourself. And that's the last step is you create leverage. And that's about wealth. And to your point, you know, it's all about it's all about leverage for yourself, whether it's creative leverage, whether it's time leverage, whether it's wealth leverage, like you, the entrepreneur, get to decide that. And um, and again, being a third shift entrepreneur is just that. The first shift is your day job. Your second shift is your family, the things you care about, your volunteer commitments. And the third shift is what you build on the side. And it's that third shift mentality. Like, look, I, I'm taking the white space in my life and that's where I build. And uh, that's where I'm building the landscape business. That's where I'm building this technology product. That's where I'm building this, this movement. Um, and we've got time. And that's, that's the thing that we have as a resource in our lives is the time. And um, don't, don't, don't abandon the first shift, which is your job, because you need that financial floor in your life. That is actually, that's the risk mitigation on the thing that you're going to go start. Keep that floor intact. That's important. And um, people like Bill Gates and, uh, uh, and other successful entrepreneurs you know, have done that. They kept the floor intact before they went in, in, in full time for the business that they were trying to create. Yeah, it's fascinating. In fact, um, one of the books that I gave some of my early employees uh, was Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Uh, he worked as an accountant while he was selling shoes uh, for a long Phil time. Phil Knight is a great story. That's exactly right. Shoe Dog, you know, and the way in which he talks about it, or Sarah Blakely, who started Spanx, or um, Damon John, who started FUBU, or Bill Gates, who started Microsoft. These people had jobs. They kept their jobs and they were out, you know, Brene Brown was selling books out of her trunk of her car while working as a researcher, right? Before she built her business, right? Of course, she now is her, her own enterprise, her own empire, but but that's how this works. And it's it's about staying curious and kind of curating that spark and just doing it in small ways, doing it on the side, selling it out of the trunk of your car, Um and by the way, you know, that might not sound as cool as like, oh, look, I'm an entrepreneur, but like, that's a smart way to do it. And people that can't afford to, you know, jump in full, full-time selling shoes, that's, that's the way to do it. And, and it's funny because the way that Phil Knight talks about it is like, I was the exception. 
but you hear enough of these stories and then you actually look at the research. That's not the exception. That's actually how most people do it. You know, the exception is dropping out of school and going full time. That's the exception. What most people are doing, because this is what most of us, you know, we can't afford to do that. What most people are doing is building the thing on the side. And that's the way to do it. That's a smart way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's how we did it. Uh, I uh, basically told myself I'm going to take 25,000 out of my 401k and I'm going to use this to start my business and gave myself milestones and said, you don't need to build the Cadillac. You just need the radio flyer and find one or two people that will use your radio flyer and then pay for the bells and whistles, the headlights and the taillights uh, and, and, you know, use that to fund your business. Don't go build the Cadillac when it comes out. Nobody wants it. And then you wasted <laughs> Uh, all this money building the Cadillac that nobody would drive. That's it. That's exactly it. And I think, David, yeah. like we need to help people um, understand in very personal ways what those early steps look like. And that's that's what the book is. Um, half the book is the framework, the 12 observations. The other half is a fictional story of a guy who's working and he's unhappy. You know, And that's where most people start is uh, they're unhappy. They're unfulfilled. They know that they've got a bigger idea. They've got bigger potential, but they just don't know how to get started. And um, I think it's just imperative that we tell those stories. And I'm grateful for you for telling those stories as well. Um, because uh, we it's hard to become something that you can't see. You know, it's hard to, I, it's hard to understand how to be a Harvard dropout if you never went to Harvard in the first place. So we've got to tell stories that people can relate to and, uh, and then help give them those very early steps. You know, here's how you get started. And, um, and, uh, you know, and there's a path. There's a path for people. Yep. So uh, last question. I can't believe we're, we've gone longer than most podcasts. It's just a fascinating conversation. Uh, but last question, how can people find out about your book? When is it coming out? How can they buy your book? And how can they follow your journey? Sure. Uh, well, you can buy it uh, uh, anywhere books are sold, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, um, it comes out in April. Uh, we had a sort of a pre-launch, um, what I'd call a soft launch of a beta product, because I actually believe what I just described to you is true, even in publishing. So I put out a version of the book that was um, like, I'll call it 1.0. And I got feedback that was like, look, this isn't exactly what we need. We need something different. And I wrote a different book. And the book that comes out in April is 350 pages full of stories. Um and, and I'm living personally everything that I, that I preach. Um, and so the book you can find starting in April, everywhere books are sold and go to thirdshiftentrepreneur.com if you wanna sign up for our newsletters. And, and we're, we're gonna have courses and workshops and a lot of ways to engage with this. Ultimately for me, it's not just about a book, it's about a movement. It's about a, a way of doing entrepreneurship that is available to everybody, uh, everybody uh, from where you're at, disability status, uh, racial status, how old you are, you don't, you know, this isn't just about young people. This is about being 65 years old. And, you know, everyone tells grandma that like, you know, her empanadas are the best in the world. And grandma's like, maybe I can build a little business doing that. Yes, you can grandma, you know, yes, we need your empanadas in the world. So uh, this isn't just about technology. It's about, it's about the creative ideas that, that people have everywhere, um, everywhere uh, and everybody. And how they can take those things, bring them to life, and then ultimately monetize those. And that's just, you know, the genesis of any business. Um, so thirdshiftentrepreneur.com for uh, more content, workshops, uh, methodologies. And then uh, uh, you can buy the books anywhere they're sold starting in April. It's, it's published by Wiley, and uh, they've been a great publishing house to work with. So 
I'm grateful for their support. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Todd. We look forward to that book coming out and then maybe bringing you back on to hear more of your stories. But uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thanks, David. I appreciate you and appreciate the time and chance to connect with your audience of dreamers and doers. And I'm grateful for them and, and the ecosystem builders who make it all work. Thanks to everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast for entrepreneurship community practitioners hosted by David Polnraj. Special thanks to Anna Cawthorn for joining us. Cover art by show manager and creative director Mackenzie Dial Fritcher. Edited and produced by Lauren Bernard. If you'd like to suggest interviewees, new topics, or just want to reach out, please email us at podcast at startupspace.app. All Breaking Down Barriers episodes are available on our website or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe for all the latest updates.